Our scripture reading this morning comes from chapter 8 of the book of Esther. We are getting closer to finishing the entire book. We will finish next week, but for now, let us see what life is in Persia. Esther chapter 8, we'll read the entire chapter. Esther, the book of Esther chapter 8. Verses 1 through 17, the whole chapter. Hear and receive this with faith and with love. This is the word of God. Thus says the Lord. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told her he, Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king had out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you... You may write as you please with their guards to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, in the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On the day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. 
A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's commands and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The year is 1958, and the Soviet Union is favored to win the World Cup. They had dominated the field at the 1956 Olympic Games, and their team symbolized the brutal efficiency and fitness of the Soviet Empire with a collective will of a perfect team. Yet, between them and global dominance was, of course, the Brazilian national team. In 1958, We were the team of youth, individual finesse, a touch of chaos, and of course of Gahincha and Pelé, two of the greatest to ever play the game. Perhaps this is why the concepts of strategy, tactics, and planning were so foreign to the national team. According to the legend, in his pre-match speech between those two countries, Brazilian coach Vicente Fiola had drawn up a perfect scheme to beat the Soviets. It involved short passes here, dribbling there, inverting positioning, running past defenders, Pelé dribbling past a thousand players and Garisha past ten thousands before scoring a ton and beating the Soviets. Garisha whose career would be defined by ill discipline, listen attentively. After some reflection, more or less in these words, he asks, that sounds great, coach, but did the Russians agree to all of this? As much as coach Feola had planned for the match, to have success in soccer, and why not, in life, you will always depend on the Russians following your plans. Yet one of the sad realities of this life is that it insists on not following our plans, doesn't it? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Another old prophet said once, And you probably felt that many times, even if just metaphorically. You do all you can to live a peaceful and uneventful life in this world, only to be served with a proverbial knuckle sandwich. 
what we do when life insists on not going as planned and realize nothing in this world can solve that problem. What do we do? As we saw last week, we can't order peace of mind, hope in the face of death, or conflict resolution online for next day delivery. In our text, Esther and Mordecai did all they could. They planned their plans, executed them perfectly. Haman is now out of the picture, and their lives are safe. For now. Still, remember, there is still an irrevocable edict of death hanging over the heads of the Jews. Is there anything they can do to save their, their people? Can we trust that Ahasuerus will follow our plans? What if he doesn't? This morning we will see that as it has been since the beginning of this book and the beginning of the world, we can't put our hopes on the empires of this world. We will need much more than that to survive against our enemies. This morning, the Holy Spirit will encourage us to seek Jesus Christ when the empire falls short and we are hang left hanging by this life. In summary, Esther 8 teaches us that Jesus, the divine warrior, has secured victory for us losers. Again, Jesus, the divine warrior, has secured victory for us losers. We'll see that in three points this morning. First, this world offers no hope for us hopeless. Again, this world offers no hope for us hopeless. We see that in verses 1 through 8. In verses 1, through two, one 2, and 3, we finally see some reparations being made. Mordecai receives, receives that promotion we expected him to receive way back in chapter 2. He even gets the famous signet ring after Esther tells the emperor they're actually cousins. Esther receives the house of Haman, his estate, as, and she also gives it to Mordecai for him to rule over it. It was a Persian tradition for the estate to confiscate the goods, the goods of those who were executed for treason. Yet, as I said, the decree of death is still valid. However, the matter seems to have been settled for Ahasuerus, the one in charge. We realize soon that he was not mad about genocide. He was just sore that Haman somehow hurt his pride by plotting against him. Haman's dad, we move on. Well, someone has to go and tell him something about that then. Again, someone has to tell him something. And again, it is still a capital crime to come before the emperor unannounced. Yet Esther does it again. Last week, Haman fell to beg for his life. Now, Esther, what a contrast, falls down, cries, and begs for the life of her people, even though her life is already safe. How can I bear to see the calamity going, coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction 
of my kindred, she says in verse 6. She asked Ahasuerus to avert the evil plan of Haman. Nevertheless, we find out there is, as we know already, a greater power in Persia that not even Ahasuerus can challenge. There is nothing even the emperor can do against Persian bureaucracy. Haman's edict simply cannot be revoked. There's nothing I can do. There are no forms we can fill. And hey, he says, as if trying to dangle a consolation prize, I gave you Haman's house. You won. What else do you want? Maybe Haman, maybe Ahasuerus assumed Esther was just like any other Persian and only cared for her, for her own skin. Seeing that getting rich was not enough for her, he offers, well, the last thing within his reach. Here's some bureaucracy for you to use. Why don't we put even more laws into action? Why don't you write another decree? Ahasuerus can't revoke the current decree, but he tells Esther and Mordecai that they can issue another one, which would also be irrevocable. May the best decree wins, says one commentator. Pathetic, says me. Even, ever, even after everything that has happened, life in Persia is still under a bureaucratic machine run by a thoughtless and insensitive king that hasn't changed and will not change. And that, my friends, as I have said time and again during the series, that is the world we live in. A world where good intentions and plans drown in the deep and cold waters of bureaucracy. We can plan as much as we want, but there's no agreeing all of that with the Persians. There is only so much the empires of this world can offer us the hopeless. The empire can only go as far as enforcing behaviors through laws and expect everyone to fall in line. Still, as we have seen time and again in this book, no law, be it on the constitution or, the, or even on the unspoken protocols that rule even our churches sometimes, can change a person's heart or give life to those spiritually dead. Conformity to external behaviors mandated by laws and traditions offer no hope when tragedy strikes. When death knocks at the door and robs you of your plans for a long retirement together, when war breaks, the bombs drop, and the world halts in shock at the level of violence and depravity that we can only achieve when we work together, when our plans for joy, peace, and rest of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are frustrated by this world, there is nothing Amazon can deliver the next day on your doorstep to placate your pain. The sooner we realize that, the better. 
Because we will see in our second point that if the world offers no hope for the hopeless, our only hope against our enemies is in Jesus, the divine warrior. That's our second point this morning. Our only hope against our enemies is in Jesus, our divine warrior. We see that in verses 9 through 14. In this section, in this section not only of our text, but of the book, Mordecai is the leading actor through which God acts in these latter parts, having now been empowered by Queen Esther, his cousin. In the middle section of chapter 8, he employs his edict-writing abilities for the good of his people. He comes up with a counter-edict, the edict of life that will keep the people of God from harm. Spread throughout the empire by swift couriers on swift horses, we are told again and again, bred by the best horses, Mordecai's decree gave Jews the imperial authority to defend themselves from harm. It allowed them to retaliate with equal force their attacking enemies, children and women included. We read in verse 11. Wait a second. Is that how the people of God should treat their enemies? You ask. By killing, killing even women and children of their enemies? Is that what we're called for? And on top of it, while you think about these questions, think about the consequences had Mordecai and Asher failed. Had Haman's plan succeeded in eradicating the Jews throughout the Persian Empire, the line of Judah would probably have been interrupted, and the promised seed of the woman would never have been born. For a second, we are faced with this awkward realization that God's redemption plan would have failed because he did not run it by the Persians before. But still, even with that in mind, given the perceived absurdity of this, the proposed solution, an empire-wide counter-offensive that would spare not even women and children, we ask ourselves, couldn't God have protected Jesus' genealogy without all this violence? Christian, the sooner you grasp this, the better for the sake of your soul. God has been in a holy war against sin and evil ever since sin and evil came into the world. So the right question is not, why would God allow all that killing, but why would he allow anyone to live as long as we do? Because as Paul said clearly in Romans, all of us have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. All men and women, all of us here today in this room, being sinners, have to face this decree of death. Yet, God also revealed to us in his word another decree, the decree of redemption, that would nullify the edict of death. 
And in Esther, we see that being played out as we see that the decree of death and the decree of life stem from the same source, the king's sealed signet ring. He signs off death and he signs off life. And just as Ahasuerus couldn't revoke Haman's decree, God cannot simply rescind the death decree. We have sinned against God. And perfectly, and a perfectly righteous God cannot let evil go unpunished. He wouldn't be a righteous God if he did. Instead, God issues a life-saving counter-decree in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A perfectly loving God provides a way for sinners and enemies to become friends and family. He wouldn't be a perfectly loving God if he didn't. God's holy war against sin and rebellion culminated when God poured his wrath against his enemies, against sinners like you and me, the sins of men, women, and children on the shoulders of him who identified with us but had no sin. So at the cross, Jesus, the perfect and true Israel, the true and perfect Son of God, the divine warrior waging war against our greatest enemy, sin and death, defeated them forever in a way that no Persian edict could ever accomplish. At the cross, Jesus fulfilled what Mordecai's edict was a mere shadow of. He defeated God's enemies and became a safe haven for his people. So the good news for us today from our text is that at the cross, the ultimate turning of tables, God's only son became as if his enemy so that his enemies could become sons and daughters. And now, our war is of a different kind. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, it is against dark forces, the spiritual empires that are after our hearts and our souls. And our ultimate marching orders now are found in the Great Commission. We go throughout this world, spreading the news of peace and the gospel of Jesus through the power of the Spirit turns God's enemies into his friends, men and children included. The only sword that God's people bear now is the sword of the Spirit. Jesus, my friends, is the divine warrior who defeats his enemies at the cross. And the defeat of his enemies in Esther reminds us of that. And by doing so, he becomes our only hope against our enemies because Jesus identified with his people in their hopeless state. That's our third and final point this morning. Jesus identified with his people in their hopeless state. We see that in the concluding verses 15 through 17. Chapter 8 concludes with a beautiful picture of reversal. Mordecai emerges from the king's presence dressed as royalty. 
If you look close, the colors and fabrics mentioned here echo the majesty of Ahasuerus' banquet in chapter 1, almost word for word. All that majesty and glory, now one person has gets to wear it. And this, of course, is the same Mordecai who was in sackcloth and ashes after the first decree, and we, were rem- rem- and we remember that at that time he could not even come close to the king in that, is- that state. Now he comes from the presence of the king, dressed like a king. But wait, there's more. While Haman's decree brought chaos to Susa in chapter 3, Mordecai's decree brought joy and celebration. Once distressed and disheveled, the Jewish community responds to the second decree with light, gladness, joy, and honor, we read in verse 16. The wailing and sorrow of chapter 4 are turned into laughter and shouts of joy. What a great reversal. But wait, there's even more. The text concludes by saying that many people throughout the empire declare themselves Jewish. However, you might have noticed, the text uses an unusual phrase in the Old Testament, the fear of the Jews. The fear of the Lord or the fear of God almost rolls off her tongue, but it says the fear of the Jews. Once again, in the book of Esther, the elephant in the room is left unnamed. And we are even left wondering if, at least for some of those This declaring themselves Jews was a mere conversion motivated by politics rather than by faith, now that there is a Jew in power. Still, while the battle has not been fought yet, the tables have been turned enough for an empire-wide celebration. And it seems that we can finally let go that corporate side of relief. I mean, can we really? Can you do that today? While we have seen one reversal after another since that sleepless night in Susan chapter 6, what about us? Have you seen this week's prayer list on your email? Sickness, depression, anxiety, Despair, hopelessness. You've planned and executed all your plans as best as humanly possible. But sometimes it just seems that God forgot to approve them. And you see this great reversal and you think to yourself, where were Mordecai and Esther when your world was turned upside down by suffering, loss, and mourning? You see, these are not new questions. And as we have alluded to that before, we do it again during World War II. The book of Esther, particularly, provided much hope for European Jews against the Nazis. Facing Hitler's final solution, a plot eerily similar to Haman's, they found solace in Esther's tales of, tale of survival and defiance against the empire great. But for so many of them, 
Esther fell short. Gas chambers and bullets prevailed. Where was God's silent providence then? Many more Christians that we could count have faced this question and still do it to this day, probably even today. Roman emperors, Persian kings, Muslim regimes, Russian gulags, Chinese forced labor camps. Here in this country, we might even have some religious freedom, but the empire keeps kneeling on our necks with cancer, with violence, with tragedy, with unexpected and sudden deaths. Where is God's silent providence right now? I can only imagine this question was on the disciples' mind, minds when they saw their Messiah crucified. Why did God not intervene before the massacre of their Lord as he did with Esther? Where was God's silent providence when the Son of God hung naked and lifeless? Yet in the darkest of all times, when hopelessness reigned supreme between Friday night and Sunday early morning, that's when the tables were turned. To quote Brian Gregory, the tables do turn. Maybe not before the gas is turned on or the bomb is detonated. Maybe not before the sword, sword is swung or the atom is split. Maybe not before the life support is turned off or the cross is lifted. But deeper, much deeper still. In the chambers, in the pits, in the ashes. Yes, in the tomb itself. The tables turn. Whenever the empire seems to win... Whenever life frustrates your plans and punches you in your existential face, whenever you are tempted to ask, where is God's silent providence then? You remember the cross and the tomb. Out of the deepest recesses of sadness and evil, Jesus rose victorious and death became life. And like Mordecai, Because of that, one day, those who are united to the risen Christ will too emerge victorious and glorious from the presence, not of Ahasuerus, but of the king of the universe, because death was turned into life. Brian Gregory continues, For all the tragedy in our world, in our culture, and in our lives, nothing is beyond the touch of the God of the resurrection, he says. Deep down in those places of death and hopelessness and despair, deep down there, there God is at work, plunging his providential hands into the ashes of our mortality and into the soil of our despairing world and crafting the newness, the newness of resurrection. Far As the curse is found, that's where God's providence is.
Let us pray. Write your blessed name, O Lord, upon our hearts, there to remain so indelibly, indelibly engraved that no prosperity nor adversity shall ever move us from your love. Be to us a strong tower of defense, a comforter in tribulation, a deliverer in distress, a very present help in trouble, and a guide to heaven through the many temptations and dangers of this life. Be all of that to us through Jesus Christ. In his blessed name we pray and we say together, amen.